0: Welcome back to About South. This week, we're bringing you a conversation with Melinda Maynor-Lowry and William Sturkey, both professors of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We talked to them about the recent removal of the Confederate monument known as Silent Sam from UNC's campus, and what this monument means for their community and all of us. If you've been following Confederate monument debates, you're going to find this episode particularly enlightening. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. We are here in the Love House in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the campus of UNC. This building houses the Center for the Study of the American South, and we're here with two professors from the History Department as well as American Studies, and Melinda, you're currently the director for the center, That's right. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so we're glad to be here with William Sturkey and Melinda Maynor-Lowry to talk about a really important ongoing issue about the silent sam statue memorial monument i think it's been called a lot of things that has recently been removed from chapel hill's campus now we do have listeners all over i've been following the silent sam story pretty closely because of my own connection with this area but for our listeners who don't know what silent sam is what is it and how did it end up on UNC's campus?
1: So Silent Sam is a uh, pretty traditional Confederate monument um, dedicated by name to the soldiers who fought for the Confederacy, of course, during the Civil War. Uh, It was initially planned going back to 1907, We started to plan you know, what a monument on campus might look like. They sent some folks down to Wilmington to look at a, a monument in the cemetery in the in Wilmington, and that sort of provided the model. And then they spent a few years raising money. Uh, the university gave some money. The Daughters of the Confederacy gave some money. Um, some local benefactors, including Julian Carr, uh, gave some money to help erect this monument. And it was dedicated in 1913 with a really divisive speech that not, that was intended to not only honor um, the young men who fought for the Confederate Army, but then also really sort of establish you know what the South had become since that moment. So since that great challenge that of course ripped apart our nation, and you know the end of slavery, but then there's also restoration that had occurred by 1913 when the monument was erected, and that was basically the establishment of Jim Crow broadly speaking, but you know ensuring that African Americans you know, we're not allowed to vote, um, making sure that you know, black people couldn't hold office, couldn't run businesses in the same way. Um, and all of that was talked about in the dedication speech. Just to offer some perspective, in terms of, I think that's something that a lot of people miss in terms of Silent Sam. So it went up 48 years after the war. To put that into perspective, that would be if we erected a monument, not a memorial, but a monument to Vietnam War soldiers five years from now. That's how long of a gap it was between the end of the war and the erection of Silent Sam.
2: Right. Right, and you know, that's the distinction between a memorial and a monument. A memorial would usually honor the, the dead of a conflict or another magnificent event, um, transformative event in our society. A monument like this honors something new often or honors a, commemorates a kind of historical moment and Silent Sam is way more than a monument to Confederate soldiers. It's really about celebrating the victory of white supremacy in the aftermath of the emancipation of enslaved people in the South.
0: And so it comes in, this, these group of boosters decide to put this on the campus in 1913 to,
2: to dedicate something dedicate to white Dedicate the campus <laughs> to yeah. white rule. Um, I mean I think there's a lot of interpretations obviously of of what a statue like this represents but there's two layers. One is a kind of myth, the myth of the heroic Confederate soldier, the idea that the campus would be dedicated to honoring their memory, and then there's kind of the reality which is associated with all of the documentary record that comes along with the establishment of the monument itself to um, the installation as a, a marker of white victory in the aftermath of Southern defeat. And the idea that our UNC campus is dedicated to that is the thing that most of us cannot stomach at this day and age.
0: To be clear, Sam is not, it's sort of this amorphous, it's not a real person or figure, it's just this generalized white Confederate soldier not attached to any reality, aside from the reality of white supremacy. Is that fair?
1: Well, I think that, you know, to a lot of people, certainly it represents troops from the university that went to serve in the Civil War. And it's just sort of, you know, it's supposed to be a young man, a young white man, and it's supposed to be sort of a generic version of what what one of those young people would have looked like, I think.
2: And when the United Daughters of, of the Confederacy has only occasionally spoken in the last 50 years, they've called him, the United Daughters of the Confederacy has called, referred to him as our boy soldier. So there's a whole association of the statue with innocence and youth and um, the ways that the South was victimized supposedly by Northern aggressors. I think the other thing that's quickly worth mentioning is how the nickname Silent Sam came up. Silent Sam got its nickname because male students began to joke that he would only fire his gun if a virgin walked by. And so that's a particular, not only is there a degree of racial supremacy going on, but there's a degree of gender supremacy and misogyny that's really laden behind the way UNC students have interpreted the monument over time. And so we don't, that nickname Silent Sam is really part of A history of gender violence as well as racial violence.
0: And so it's understandable. So for people who don't know, there's been a lot of activity around the monument in the last few months um, with students and activists taking it down. But as I understand it, that's not to characterize students have protested, complained, lodged fair complaints against this for many decades. 50
2: years. I mean, since 19... probably 68 or 69 was the first kind of wave of objections to the monument.
0: And what has led up to the recent activities on campus around the monument?
2: Well this is one of
1: the things that I think goes back to the meaning and it's it's a decision that people make quite frankly. So a lot of people choose to only see Silent Sam through that sort of narrow window as being dedicated to those poor innocent troops or whatever. Um, But clearly Silent Sam in this moment in time, is existing in the context of a post uh, um, Charleston, South Carolina, a post Charlottesville, and so that really ramped things up here. Charlottesville and Heather happened, and Heather Hare was killed just one week before the start of classes here, and that's really when this new wave started up. Of course, there was another wave after Charleston as well, but this most recent wave in the past year started, and it was really led by. There were a lot of people involved, a lot of people were protesting, but it was really led by a really strongly dedicated core of students on our campus who conducted, started to conduct a sit-in after that night of the first protest. And they were there for nine days until the university evicted them two days before the opening football game. And then students essentially led protests throughout the course of the year. And a large part of that protest, and one that I quite frankly admire quite a bit, was distributing literature and trying to share information doing real public education work about the monument and about the reasons that people had a problem with the monument and so that had carried on for an entire year with no real engagement from the administration they didn't even talk to the students um, even as the students were receiving various types of threats there's a man on camera for example during one of the football games who threatened to harm one of our students and then it really all came to a head as all the students came back to campus this year and a group of very well organized folks just decided to tear it down.
2: The administration's response has been in the context of this 2015 law that the General Assembly passed and so after Dylan Roof killed Those folks in Charleston, um, South Carolina, the issue was really hot about what do state legislators, what responsibility do they have for the elevation of Confederate symbols in public spaces. South Carolina was debating whether the flag belonged on Capitol grounds. You know, people were renewing this conversation in Mississippi that they've had for a really long time about what role does the flag play in state symbols. Um, Here in North Carolina our legislature was let's call it proactive and said before anybody begins to whisper about these Confederate memorials or monuments that are all over our state let's pass a law that prohibits anybody from taking them down under almost any circumstances. And so that while the law doesn't contain a lot of enforcement provisions it's surprisingly detailed on under what circumstances can you remove the monument. And so after Charlottesville, our students, faculty, staff, a lot of people, alumni, were calling for the removal of the monument or at least some contextualization. You know, and that's another element of the student activism that's stretched over time. For many, many years, nobody was asking really for the monument to come down or be removed. Everyone was just asking for something really simple to some historical context they're on site to explain what this means and, and why it was put up when it was established. But in the context of this 2015 law our leadership here was very reluctant to make any kind of move towards a a relationship with the people who wanted either the monument taken down or wanted context provided.
0: I see. And so the North Carolina legislature in making this like shall we say, a proactive law to really negate any home rule for local municipalities or organizations to make decisions for themselves, mm-hmm. what that activist, at some point, people have to say, no more. No, we're not going to have this here. And if the legislature is not going to support that, what is essentially a question of home rule, people can will make the decision for themselves. Right. And yeah. so that's what we've scene with the activist right Mm -hmm.
2: and some people have characterized it as vandalism subject to the same kind of punishments or or rules that vandalizing any campus fixture uh, or any kind of state property would the consequences of breaking those laws others have characterized it as civil disobedience that when you're faced with an unjust law there's no doubt that you have the ability to break that law and at this moment, it sort, of, you know, it sort of feels like we're at one extreme or another. Um, certainly here at the, at the center, we've gotten a, some responses from our statements on the issue that um, either repeat the myths that we just talked about. I mean, how, how dare you take down this memorial to our Confederate dead? Don't you understand that the states reconciled 150 years ago and all this kind of stuff. And then we have another layer of responses that, that really criticize students and others who have been involved in the protests as vandals, as a violent mob, and how dare we support lawbreakers. And those, you know, that type of thinking that doesn't allow for any empathy or context or history even, despite all their claims to history, um, it's just it's really confusing, you know, and it's deeply kind of distracting from how we can move forward as a campus. One of the
1: one of the things about the legislature it, worth noting is that I think it was thirty six days, literally thirty six days, from Dylan Roof uh, murdering those people in the church to the law being signed by the governor. So they did this really, really quickly, and obviously there's a lack of empathy um, with 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 which such speed, you know, such haste. And the other thing that I find really surprising about the law is the real lack of just common understanding about something that historians have been studying for years, and that is noticing this large gap between you know, the end of the Civil War and the commemoration of white supremacy. So, for example, I've, you know, I've read a quote from Tommy Tucker, who's one of the sponsors of the bill, and he just flatly said, look, the monuments can stand where they have been for 150 years. And that displays a fundamental misunderstanding of when the monuments were erected and the context in which they were erected. He's off by 50 years, right? They weren't dropped there by the ghosts of you know, Jefferson Davis, right? They were erected by
2: other people in a later generation. A generation and a half or two generations later. Right.
0: Right. These are largely, if I understand it correctly, the United Daughters of the Confederacy had a lot of these monuments kind of mass produced and set everywhere and they were on a campaign to put them in all of these various public and private spaces, right? It's not, we're not talking about some great work of memorial art,
2: well, I mean, I think Silent Sam, as I've heard people who worked in bronze sculpture talk about it, they do talk about it as a work of art. I mean, in particular, that statue, I'm not trying to elevate it, but I do think it's worth noting that the statue that came down in Durham in the immediate aftermath, or more immediate aftermath of Charlottesville, is a good example of a kind of mass-produced statue. I mean, it was, it was not especially, it uh, didn't take a lot to bring down that statue. This statue was epoxied to the granite that it sits on, and between the uh, probably, I don't know, 30-ton granite pedestal and this giant bronze thing, it's a substantial piece, uh, which to me speaks to, you know, even more how UNC as a campus at the time was ready to embrace what they knew was going to be a permanent fixture in our life. And to think about 105 years ago, those folks never envisioning that UNC would be an integrated place. It came to be integrated what, 40 years or so? I mean, it was a slow process, but 40 to 60 years after the installment of the of the statue, there were black students on this campus, there were black faculty on this campus. The fact that people in 1913 could never have envisioned that says a lot about Jim Crow, it says a lot about how public institutions were complicit with the formation of white supremacy as we know it now.
1: Yeah, and just to add some context, if we think about it maybe in terms of numbers, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has been integrated for less than 30 percent of its existence. So for most of its existence, it has been precisely that, a segregated school that was fine with promoting and erecting these relics to white supremacy.
0: Both of you have said some things. I wonder about what having the statue reveals about the campus and the community, but what do you think having the statue here also conceals about the history of the university and the history of the community? What does the debate or the statue itself kind of render invisible in a way?
1: I mean, I would say the insidious nature of white supremacy and Jim Crow, especially among state leaders involved in founding um, and maintaining the university, especially after Reconstruction, you know with people refusing to acknowledge that other side of it, the side that you know talks about the superiority of the Anglo Saxon race, as they talked about in the dedication speech, and just wanting to sanitize it right? They want to sanitize these sort of white supremacist relics for a modern era, and so they've tried to sort of you know recraft their meeting in a way that really works right with black and people of different people of color on the campus, and um. It's just this refusal to me that's quite stunning to really deal with to really look under the hood you know and to and to think about what that experience might be like for a person of color walking by the monument and even even white folks you know who graduated from here in the 50s before the school was fully desegregated talking about well it didn't bother me so how you know how dare you say that it bothers you and i think it conceals this real investment in sort of the historic whiteness of this place and then also it sort of bolsters this progressive you know narrative that okay yeah we let black people come on here you know and yeah you know aren't we wonderful now they're on the basketball team we got a handful of professors and that sort of a thing and so you know really self-congratulatory without really actually digging in deeper um, into the history and into some of the really problematic um, sites that we have on campus
0: Having grown up in North Carolina I think if you ask most people about Chapel Hill, North Carolina views Chapel Hill as the liberal progressive center of the state. Mm-hmm. And yet we're talking about how this situation is being handled in the flagship university of what i don't I think it's fair to say the average North Carolinian would consider the most liberal place in the state. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's very ironic, but then to me, as an, an indigenous person growing up in North Carolina, um, in Durham, also having connections to the Lumbee community in, in the rural eastern part of North Carolina. I didn't have a whole lot of illusions that Chapel Hill was as progressive as they people here proclaimed it was. I mean, my mother was discouraged from applying to UNC School of Education because she was told that she wasn't smart enough. She didn't bothered to apply after she heard that, so there's you can't really say she was formally rejected because of her race. But the faculty here at the School of Ed in the 1970s told her that there's no point in you applying, you won't you won't get in, you don't have the educational background, you don't have the intelligence to come here. And you know that's the kind of message as a Lumbee woman you know hearing that and then going down the road to Duke and Duke says come on in, you know embraces you with open arms, it characterizes you know, or colors, your view of this supposedly most liberal place in the state, you realize it's not, it's not so liberal after all. And Silent Sam is kind of our chief representative of that at this moment. It's also really blocking us from doing the kind of work that we know we have the potential to do and the capacity for.
0: does the university community find itself in right now? I know that's a diversity of opinions, and y'all are both professors of history and attached to the center that has I think a responsibility to address this. Where do you find yourselves, and where do you think the university finds itself?
2: So at this moment, me personally, I recognize that there are sort of two versions of what's going on. Um, One is the idea that the monument must never return to campus. We don't know where it is at this moment, but <laughs> certainly the idea that it would not be installed back anywhere on this campus is a very like viable, principled, moral stance. I think the the other idea, which is that it could go somewhere on campus in a properly contextualized form, um, is also compelling, but you can't look at either one of those positions without also seeing the bigger picture politically. So the state legislature, just as they're passing laws preventing local communities from making decisions about bathrooms, you know, with HB 2, and they're passing laws preventing local communities from making decisions about Confederate monuments, with this other 2015 law, um, they're also making decisions about funding and resources for higher education and they've put in place a board of governors so the UNC system has a kind of governing board which is charged with making many many decisions about the lives lives of these campuses and there are certain benefits to that kind of centralized structure but there are also downsides and right now we're seeing a downside of a board of governors appointed by a very much right-wing legislature who has a deeply committed ideological agenda to remove access to higher education, public higher education. Our former Republican governor made statements about if you want to go study women and gender, go to a private college. Don't go to a public university. That kind of thing has no place in our publicly funded universities. And so that was, that was probably what, five or so years ago that he made that kind of statement. That's the context in which this issue about the statue is unfolding. And I feel that for this Board of Governors, which has directed the campus to find a solution to the placement of the statue, um, we also have to constantly keep in mind the fact that they're using the statue as leverage politically to keep us from fulfilling our educational mission and creating a truly inclusive, accessible environment. Um, and so, between these two poles of stay on campus or not stay on campus, we have to, I believe, we have to find something in the middle that provides for safety, safety for our students and faculty and staff, and then also enables us to move forward in a way that we can fulfill our mission. And I, so, I'm, you know, at this particular moment, I don't know quite where I stand on that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the, just to follow up, the Board of Governors is so highly... Po- politicized and partisan. Um, They include former state legislatures. They include major donors to the Republican Party. Um, One of the the, the current head of the Board of Governors, Um, it was suggested to him to join the Board of Governors by a candidate who he gave money to his campaign. So that's how that worked. And, you know, they could raise the football stadium tomorrow and the Board of Governors wouldn't blink an eye. We wouldn't even have anything to say. But with the Confederate monument coming down, Now that's a really politically charged issue and there's a lot to say and they want to do a lot of oversight and a lot of control. And there's always the threat of people being terminated. So the university president was fired a few years ago in a, you know, clearly uh, partisan divided decision. And so there's always that threat lingering over everyone's head about any decision that they make. There's certainly the consequences about resources for for the university, but then also consequences about people's position at the university itself. And one thing i'll add about um these two versions that i think that we have and i think that linda's right about that but one of the things that's happened is that we've missed an opportunity to deal with this in a really productive educational way and so because of everything that happened last year most specifically all of the threats of violence that the protesters face mostly online probably mostly not real but in any case, we had people on Facebook and, th- and, you know, social media literally threatening to come and lynch some of the protesters. Hang
2: these people from a tree.
1: <laughs> yeah. We had a guy, now we know, who emailed the chancellor, said, I'd be happy to come to campus with my M-16 to guard the statue. And so now, with all of this happening, you know, people don't want it in their building because of all of these threats of violence that we've seen as this has escalated over the past year.
0: And you just have to take that really seriously.
2: Well again, yeah, you can't just dismiss somebody like that as is gonna bring an M16 as mentally ill or whatever. I mean, who commits the kind of mass shootings that we've seen on all kinds of campuses and public schools and in every type of environment? It's people who have easy access to weapons. And so, there's a, yeah, there's so many layers of tension here and it feels that at this moment we're, we're caught in a no-win situation and so I just try to keep reminding myself as I navigate this territory that um, it's not just about statue. <laughs> no, it's exactly. about what, we, you know, what we're committed to as a community.
1: One of the other things too that is worth mentioning is are the financial resources that have been poured into this thing and that the thing will continue to demand. So if we are to put it in a... I mean, people have suggested building a brand new museum, right? For example, um, if they were to put it in Wilson Library, then they would have to do some renovations in Wilson Library in order to accommodate it. Last year, we had 24-hour armed security watching the statue throughout the entire course of the academic year. I'm talking literally 24 hours, 4.30 in the morning, 7.30 at night. The police were there. There were two cameras on it at all times. The university spent $390,000 just policing the statue last year, let alone the money that it spent to hire the consulting firm to sort of renovate McCorkle Place in order to appease the protesters by, you know, offering contextualization, some contextualization signs, elevating the, the, the monuments of the unsung founders, the African-Americans who helped build the university, you know, because that's literally sinking into the ground, adding uh, some kind of a marker about Native American um, people whose, whose land we obviously are on. So, I mean, the resources that have gone into this thing are just astounding.
0: I think you're very clear pointing out this is, this is a no-win situation in a lot of ways. What what is the best case scenario of what happens next to keep yourselves and your students materially and physically safe, but also for Chapel Hill to be the type of institution I think maybe it imagines itself to be at its core?
2: Yeah, I don't know what to do about the statue. I mean, I can make, you know, I can make, say ideas all day long, you know, but I, I don't know that anything that we would come up with would address this larger political moment we're in, and of course the Chancellor has said publicly and that she would like us to go vote, you know, that she would like us to change the law, that she would like the legislature to do something different. That's not necessarily going to solve the problem in the, even in the longer term either, so I'm unclear about um, how we can move forward and expect a certain outcome. So I think whatever we kind of decide, it needs to be dis- decided in, in as much of a communal spirit as possible. I think the chancellor created a situation by avoiding, by, by um, you know, continually um, protecting the statue instead of protecting the students or the community that was deeply affected by this statue that that set of decision making has put us in this kind of no-win situation. However, now that we're here I feel like it's no longer a her problem, it now is a we problem in a whole different way than it has been before. And so the best possible outcome will be probably to gamble on a solution either off campus or on campus, but either way it's a gamble. I'll feel best about it if we can try to come up with it together as a community not, maybe not consensus, that might not be the goal, but if, there's, if compromise is part of it, and we can get there. I'm not a compromiser by, by nature, <laughs> but um, I'm willing to compromise to see us safer in the future.
1: And just to be clear, a lot of people on campus, a lot of organizations, including CSAS, uh, public humanities, all sorts of departments, have done a lot of the work. Even students have done a lot of the work. Um, organizing town halls and forums and things like that so that people can come and learn, you know, what experts think about this. But the people noticeably absent from those are the administrators who simply don't seem to value the opinion of faculty experts in the way that much of the rest of the world, quite frankly, values our opinion about the Confederate monument on our campus.
0: for some people out there you know this is one monument on one campus in one relatively small town in North Carolina but what does it say about the larger context? I know you've talked about the larger political moment but what the two of you and your community is going through right now how does that apply to the larger picture? Someone in Northern California you know What happens with Silent Sam? How does that affect people everywhere?
2: So one way to think about that is our national project of what do we choose to remember and what do we not remember. You know San Francisco, the city of San Francisco recently removed a monument to um, the frontier basically (laughs) and you know there were figures on this monument that included a subjected Indian um, and other states and other campuses elsewhere have done the same kind of work sometimes around obvious images of um, repression or subjugation that do not, that no longer match the vision and values of that particular community, campus, or, or city or town. Other places in the world, I mean, when South Africa has removed its statues of Cecil Rhodes or lithuania has removed its statues of stalin and lenin or germany obviously has removed its statues of of hitler or other nazi party officials canada is in the process of this discussion around indigenous policymakers who have you know created things that, that have deeply harmed indigenous people in canada this is a worldwide conversation about why do we why have we chosen to remember these things that that represent genocide colonialism and imperialism and all of their negative consequences as opposed to making a choice to remember something that represents inclusivity or a a notion that we you know you don't that we all belong here and i think that idea that we all belong here very much resonates with almost anybody on this campus anyway and most of the citizens of north carolina I mean they pay taxes so that this place can support the education of their children along with the other, all of the other institutions in the university system. You know, they believe, that taxpayers in North Carolina believe in public education. But they sometimes are not as aware of how these layered symbols and decision making actually either exclude people or they force folks to actively justify their existence in the space. I think that's one of the, when I look at San Francisco taking down that monument about the frontier, I'm like, that's really a, that's a, that's a statement that San Franciscans of all backgrounds can feel like they belong in San Francisco. When UNC Chapel Hill, this progressive beacon of the entire U.S. South, is struggling over whether or not a Confederate monument belongs there or not. It's really a wake. It should. I hope it's a wake-up call for people who believe that that you can come here and be accepted. Because unfortunately, it's not automatically true. You know, um, many of us are still faced with situations where we have to justify our existence, and that goes back to the very roots of colonialism and imperial systems that have installed people in power and afforded them a degree of privilege that just makes the, the rest of us invisible.
1: A lot of folks view people who are engaged in this sort of work, um, you know, people protesting the monuments, talking about the monuments or whatever, any sort of other buildings um, as their racial agitators or their, you know, snowflakes or whatever, I don't think that's the vision of many of these people especially in this era when we've just lived through 2015, 2017, with these horrific acts of racial violence where in both cases um, the perpetrators were looking at the Confederate monuments erected 100 or so years ago. I think that, one, that the vision is really that one day we could potentially move beyond this, right? And that one of the things that we have to do in order to do that is that we have to reach, we have to have some kind of reckoning a reconciliation. We have to go through a painful process that the United States of America has never gone through. Right? We barely recognize what happened during Jim Crow. We barely recognize what happened during slavery, what happened during the colonial era, whatever. And that ultimately on the other side of that very difficult process, we've had difficult processes, but we need a a bit more, is that we'll come out better, right? And we'll come out and we'll somehow be able to eradicate this cancer of American racism that has existed throughout the entire history of our country.
0: thank Melinda Maynor Lowry and William Sturkey for joining us for this week's episode. You can learn more about the Silent Sam issue as well as other Confederate monument issues on our website aboutsouthpodcast.com. We'd also like to thank the Center for the Study of the American South for allowing us to record in their space about south is brought to you from the historic west end of atlanta georgia kelly vines produced and edited this week's episode ajua danso is our co-producer and lindsey baker handles our marketing our music is by brian horton you can find his music at brianhorton.com we'd also like to invite you to check out our facebook twitter and instagram and especially our patreon we really do need your support to keep bringing you about south content And as we start to plan next season, our fourth season, we'd really appreciate it if you could help us out. It does cost real money to bring you this, and that money, in fact, comes out of our real pockets. So anything you can do is greatly appreciated. You can find ways to support us on our website and our social media accounts. Next week, we're talking to Michelle Corey, host of The Cultured Podcast and founder of Frequency Media. It's going to be a little bit of a meta podcast as Michelle and I talk about what inspires us about this medium and why this medium is important for Atlanta and potentially the entire region. We'll see you then.